All right, so welcome back to episode two, everyone. My name is Nick Tasky, and today I'm joined by Dr. Max Gulhain. Uh, we shot an episode yesterday, uh, but I felt a little bit pressed for time, and so we decided to re-record today. Uh, grateful to have you back again, Max. Yeah, uh, thanks, Nick. Introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a general practice registrar uh, here down, here in Albury, New South Wales, and I've got an interest in lifestyle medicine and health optimization. And I guess where I've arrived to in terms of that position has been a bit of a mix of my own health journey um, and I guess uh, seeing that maybe current approaches to prevention of disease and, and, and current disease don't seem to be working very well. And, uh, you know, everyone, everyone kind of has an inkling of this because a lot of people are overweight and, and that is a trend that doesn't seem to be uh, stopping anytime soon. But, but basically I, I, I had a brush with, you know, the pharmaceutical based, you know, medical uh, system myself when I was in my early, early twenties and, and mid twenties. And I never ate a heap of junk food, but definitely uh, emphasized and ate plenty of grains and as as everyone's told to do and i developed some quite bad acne on my, on my skin and on my forehead and you know i would be going for a bike ride and always have a large up and go uh you know sugary chocolate up and go and be eating things like oats and, and lots of rice and this type of um pasta just just generally a more carbohydrate based diet and so i i Developed, yeah, as I said, acne in my uh, late early twenties that basically persisted, and you know I've I've got referred to a dermatologist and had a succession of treatments that were based on on topical topical uh, medications, topical antibiotics, topical uh, retinoids, and without mention of diet or the contribution of, of diet to my condition. And that eventually became oral antibiotics, um, oral doxycycline, oral minocycline, and then oral uh, isotretinoin or, or what your listeners might know as roaccutane. And that journey as being a patient um, was an interesting one and you know, and ultimately a very informative and beneficial one because I found that uh, that process of going through all these prescriptions and still not having my problem fixed um, made me realize that uh, a couple of things, but lifestyle is key and um, doing our own uh, kind of research is also very important. So, so what, to cut a long story short, I basically stopped the Roaccutane um, and went on my own journey and realized that it was my diet and it was things like fruit, things like grains, sugar, that were really provoking my symptoms. And after a bit of a detour doing, uh, I guess the nadir of that whole journey was a basically a plant-based diet and thinking that that was the best thing for my health, the environment, you know, all those kind of narratives that are popular at the moment. And they had been, you know, since, since the, you know, mid 2010s. Um, I guess that was the nadir, which was, you know, I was following this plant-based diet. I was eating heap of grains um, and not only did did my uh, acne kind of uh, not improve, it just got worse. And that that uh, trough, or kind of diving into a trough, 
uh, was a catalyst to then you know bounce myself out of that because because I learned about low carb down under the the YouTube page with a whole bunch of uh, doctors pre- presenting on lifestyle medicine and low carb uh, diets, and then eventually found my way into a very low carb and carnivore eating, and a whole bunch of symptoms. Not only the acne, but you know irritable bowel syndrome and all these other symptoms disappeared. So that that was kind of happening at the same time when I was at medical school and and I was resolving the dissonance in my head about what we're being taught and how insufficient and in, inadequate that framework of knowledge was for understanding what was causing the acne and, and how to actually resolve it at its fundamental layer. And, and then I, I, after graduating medical school and kind of working in emergency medicine for a couple of years, I was doing my own private research and private study the whole time and understanding more and more and more about what is causing disease and what's underlying um, chronic disease and and all these lifestyle problems that people seem to be having. And and then eventually ended up down here in in Albury um, to to study with uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Rob Sabo, who's one of the most experienced lifestyle GPs uh, who uh, has amazing depth of knowledge in reversing type 2 diabetes with diet, low-carb, and, and carnivore. So so I came down to Albury, and since being down here um, and practicing in this way, I've also hooked up with um, uh, Jake Wolke, who, who is a regenerative farmer down here. And at the moment, what, what we're doing is really trying to blend um, health and this idea of preventative um, lifestyle, lifestyle health and lifestyle medicine with regenerative farming, because obviously, if we want to operate our bodies in the most in the healthiest way, we're going to have to use the healthiest food, and we can we can maybe talk a bit later in the interview, Nick, about why that's the case. But I think regeneratively farmed animal meat is is the foundation of the healthiest human diet. So th- so that's a bit of an overview about where I came from and where I am at the moment. So we're we're building some momentum down here in Albury and helping and helping to build this idea that um you know holistic preventative health is something that is dietary and lifestyle related and there's lots you can do um rather than just say taking medications to improve uh, that health. That's awesome. You know, it's it's uh the word holistic and and your uh, I, I guess your newfound friendship um, with Jake Walkie and and your uh, your investigation of regenerative agriculture they those things all come together under the word holistic, right? Like, <clears throat> how can you separate uh, human health from the soil? How can you separate the the health of the soil from sunlight or from water? And you know, when you when you investigate deeply into what creates health, it all begins with sunlight and the soil, right? So, uh, if we're not eating food from healthy soils and we're not getting uh, healthy sunlight, then you know how can how can we build anything holistic on top of that? Talk a little bit about uh, the yeah yeah exactly and Roaccutane because sorry you continue. Oh, so, sorry, just lagged a little bit. Um, can you just repeat the question? Yeah, no worries. Um, no, well, I'm I'm happy to keep going down the tangent of 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 soil health as it relates to human health because I think that's a a topic that a lot of people miss, and it, it's kind of like to me, if you were studying nutrition and dietetics or or even 
as as a doctor, you should have some foundational idea about soil health. Man, can you ask that again? Have we, uh, Did, uh, have we... Yeah, I really lagged badly. I couldn't couldn't hear the question. Sorry, that. No, that's all right. Uh, what I was saying was, I think I think we miss a lot uh, with with our our kind of narrowing down of our focus when we study. So, what I was saying was, when we choose to study a particular field, say uh, to become a doctor or to become a nutritionist or a dietitian or or whatever field in health we choose to go down, we kind of segregate our our studies into particular fields. And in my way of thinking. Uh, and probably I assume your way of thinking as well, uh, we can't have a, a full understanding of health without an, an understanding, uh, at least a basic one, of soil health. Yeah, yeah, look, and the point that you made about not being able to disconnect human health from soil health, that that's a key, key point. And I think it's the siloing, and the fracturing of different parts of uh, human health in medicine as well as in agriculture um, and in lack of holistic thinking is is kind of one of the main reasons why we're in the position we are now collectively with, with regard to lifestyle and chronic diseases. Because in, in medicine, we have, you know, a, a specialty for every body part. We have you know, you can, people see a kidney specialist, they see a nephrologist, they see a neurologist, they see an endocrinologist, they see a cardiologist, they see a gastroenterologist. And each one of these medical specialties is treating uh, an individual body system, but not in a way that is appreciating the totality of the body as a whole. And when we're looking at human health, that I guess that's magnified on another level, like a fractal level, when we think that no that this this current paradigm isn't taking into account the the human body's needs of things like sunlight things of um nutrition um the type of nutrition the sourcing of the nutrition you know the absence of of chemicals and industrial herbicides that can might be perturbing or disturbing the function of the, of the microbiome so so it, i think the 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 problem is that there's everything is being looked at in isolation um, rather than holistically. And to to go back and appreciate or to, th- to zoom out and appreciate this reality, which is you can't, we as a species can't be healthy if the environment of which we're driving our nourishment is poisoned or is de- depleted of nutrients. So that that's where the interest in the, the regenerative agriculture came in. Because it's a simple corollary of the, the the thought path or the the thought pattern of you know what do we need to, to become optimally healthy? Well, we obviously need to eat a, a, an animal that is well. We, if you eat a sick animal or you eat an animal mm-hmm. that's not eating its its uh, species appropriate diet, then you you're it's just, it's like putting ethanol into a Ferrari. Um, so it's you're just not putting the mm-hmm. correct fuel in there. So once we appreciate that fact that we need to be eating. Um, you know, an animal that is eating its appropriate diet, then already we're kind of crossing off uh, 
or we we are ideally not favoring animals that are fed um you know commodity grains and 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 are requiring all these kind of inputs like um antibiotics in their feed and and other kind of inputs just to to maintain their uh you know a state of ex- of of not dying so um yeah their soil health is critical because um to support the the growth of these of of livestock that um are, is consistent with their optimal health then we need to be thinking about the soil and the nutrient density of the soil and how to cultivate the the health of the soil so that's that's i guess the the progression of the idea all going all the way back and you get to things like regenerative agriculture and as you mentioned you know uh alan savory uh because the the process of of rapidly moving um cattle to mimic that kind of prey prey herd dynamic is uh is the cyclical it's a cyclical um it's a cyclical form of of uh grazing is what what is needed to heal the land and then provide us with this this healthy food so i guess that's how i think about the soil health as as it relates to human health is that it's all in, interconnected nothing is disconnected everything is is connected with with uh with with each other there's there's an analogy that i i i like to make and that i kind of always envision in my mind's eye now and on you know as as it relates to human health and agriculture on on one side of the spectrum you've got uh bare dirt and you know when you pick up a clump of that dirt uh it may fall apart in your hand there's no you know there's no organism that you can see within that dirt and then perhaps you might say on the regenerative agriculture spectrum when you grab a clump of that dirt uh it may have come from compost and so you've got this mix of soil and humus and you've got living organisms within that soil and on the conventional side you know you apply your uh your agrochemicals or from another perspective you could call them pharmaceuticals for uh the the agriculture or for the land and on the other side you've got this health within the soil and this robust health uh, that builds as you contribute your compost and as you um, or your compost and as you uh, graze animals over that land as you put chickens and cattle and pigs on there and you know you 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 kind of have this idea of if you know who Joel Salison is that's the kind of method that he's using um, and I, I think Alan Savory probably does something similar to that but you know that's kind of an analogy that I like to think of when on on one side of it you're talking about people who are eating like you say a, a species specific diet. Um, that's someone who's building the compost within themselves. They're, they're creating that robust internal health within themselves. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got uh, probably someone who, who doesn't see it the way you and I see it, but someone who's, uh, who's more like that, that sand or that, uh, that more lifeless uh, soil that uh, you have to add a lot of external inputs to. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I think the analogy is is very fitting, which is um, in, in agricultural inputs and conventional agriculture that requires inputs uh, in in the same way that humans require um, pharmaceutical uh, drugs to, I guess, uh, treat chronic diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes, is that they're only required, they're conditionally required, and they're conditionally required upon the organism or the animal not occupying its appropriate evolutionary niche. And and what I mean by that is that if 
the cat the cow is moved regularly um as say a regenerative farmer does like Jake Walkie it obviates the need for drenching because they're not sitting and grazing mm -hmm. in their own feces so it, it they're breaking the parasite life cycle so the the requirement for the drench and the these other antibiotics is is not there so you 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 simply on it isn't needed if the animal is doing what it evolved to do similarly with humans if you if if humans eat a species appropriate diet which uh is animal meat and fat predominantly then their need for pharmaceutical drugs uh like blood pressure medications like glucose lowering medications um that it goes away and essentially putting that animal back into its evolutionary niche again removes the need to to add in any kind of input so so that's kind of a theme that i think about and 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 work off and i think to me that provides first principles evidence for the efficacy and the appropriateness of of a carnivore and very low carbohydrate diets which is they reverse disease that is the dietary protocol that reverses disease so um and then we can talk about the scientific and paleoanthropological evidence that backs up that kind of empirical finding that you know I notice in my patients who go on a all, all meat diet um but the the reality is that the need for a lot of of medications and for agricultural inputs is both coming from uh using these these organisms whether they're animals or crops or people in a way that nature didn't intend mm. talk let's talk a little bit about so there's 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 one side of the of the spectrum that says you know we need these nutrient dense foods uh and and I'm someone who very much believes that and so you're seeing guys like uh Paul Saladino and you know, there's there's probably a million people on the bandwagon now who say that you should eat liver. Um, and then there's another school of thought that say, uh, you know, overconsumption of organ meats or, or nutrient-dense food um, can actually cause toxicity. And, you know, people will cite this. I think there, I believe there was one specific study that said that it, it was done on pregnant women, I believe, and they, they said that overconsumption of vitamin A caused vitamin A toxicity. And when I, when I researched that a little bit further, what I found was that there are two different forms of vitamin A, right? So I believe it's retinol and beta carotene, and and you know, one this this study they were talking about vitamin A derived from retinol, sorry beta carotene, which is which is the plant based form of vitamin A, um, and they really had when you broke it down, they had really nothing to say uh, insofar as what the effect of of retinol was on the body. Do you know about that study? Yeah, so so the the recommendation to avoid um, liver in in pregnancy is is based on uh, studies that used synthetic vitamin A. So retinoids are compounds that resemble vitamin A, um, and if they are isolated and purified, um, that and and taken again not in the context of natural food, then they have teratogenic. Um, potential and the evidence isn't consistent with naturally occurring um, vitamin A at the dose that you would get in grass-fed ruminant liver with having any kind of teratogenic mm -hmm. effect 
So so um, the, the nuance here is that when consumed in a way that would be appropriate, which is a small amount of ruminant liver, not carnival liver, not polar bear liver, not, you know, uh, all these other types of, of liver that have incredibly high concentrations of vitamin A as, as in, um, you know, a carnivores would. Um, if you're eating uh, a small amount of, of grass-fed ruminant liver, there's, there's no evidence that that is in itself any way teratogenic. And in fact, that is precisely the food that is offering um, people uh, the most dense and wide array of bioavailable trace minerals, fat-soluble vitamins, and water-soluble vitamins. So the the distinction is, um, Nick, is synthetic versus naturally occurring ret- retinols. And beta-carotene is a plant-based precursor to vitamin A, and it has a very, very um, poor conversion rate um, as a basically biological precursor to um, biologically active um, vitamin A in the body, uh, essentially meaning that mm-hmm. we need to ingest animal um, sourced vitamin A through um, things like liver or um, through seafood to to meet our body's requirements. But but the the point also is that when present in food, these substances, these m- minerals, and these nutrients can t- are, are, are being co-ingested with cofactors. So when you're eating preformed vitamin mm-hmm. D, it's it's there with magnesium. So you know the absorption mm-hmm. is going to be massively increased when you're eating uh, iron in the form of animal food. It's in heme iron, and the structure of the heme molecule mm-hmm. protects that 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 Fe that iron molecule all the way up until a point it gets you know, absorbed into in, in the, 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 the mucosa of your gastrointestinal tract. Whereas if you're trying to absorb uh, iron in the form of, um, you know, a ferric compound, uh, as in, you know, uh, inorganic iron or in plants, it's li- liable to be complexed with phytic acid and other kind of um, compounds that are going to inhibit its absorption. So... Yeah, exactly. So the like, m- Mother Nature has kind of worked this out, and uh, it's it it shows us that when we eat foods that we evolved eating, and um, all these details have kind of already been worked out. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting for me, um, having dived down that rabbit hole, and and you, you know you look at things like vitamin C. Like, um, I was taking a vitamin C that. Uh, was from a reputable brand, at least I thought, until I found out that it had ascorbic acid in it. And, you know, it's no wonder that uh, these synthetic vitamins cause toxicity because to derive the amount of, say, vitamin A that you would need for a serving from uh, a plant-based food or from, uh, from genetically modified corn, how much of that product do you need to create uh, a, a serving of... Uh, of vitamin C or a serving of vitamin A, like it's an unbelievable amount. Yeah, it's it's fraught, and there's so many things that are that are kind of tied up in this whole um, complex of you know the pharmaceutical, uh, the nutraceutical industry. And it's funny because it almost mirrors the, you know pharmaceutical industry in that um, you know people are led to believe that they need to consume all these 
um, multivitamins and other forms of isolated vitamin for, for good health. Um, but essentially they, they don't. They just need to be eating a fresh food. Or Very few do, and most people would be best off just eating very, very fresh, high-quality, locally sourced, well-raised um, food of predominantly animal origin, in my opinion. So um, it's 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 a little bit um, you know frustrating, I guess, to see people get tied up in expensive ways of of um, spent you know t- taking in nutrients that they'd be better off getting if they ate uh, you know a dozen oysters and a small amount of um, beef liver or a bit of bit of bone marrow and you know some high quality steak or pastured eggs. Mm. And it, it, it kind of carries over again, like you said, from the pharmaceutical industry back into agriculture. And I guess they're, they're kind of a much for muchness. They're the same companies. Um, and so you see the application of NPK fertilizers and, you know, uh, these, these things are, are synthetically derived, right? And so uh, putting a, a synthetic fertilizer on a soil is not is not creating the same health in that soil as uh, as running a, a, a you know a, a pack of pigs through there and then and then having your cows go and graze that and your chickens and you know it's it's a it's a totally different thing putting a cover crop through and 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 all these sorts of things like they're 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 not the same although they sound so on paper. Yeah, and look, the the answer is Nick. Why is that the case? Is because no one's making money when. The farmer is fertilizing his field with his own chicken tract, like mobile chicken uh, caravan, um, and getting the chickens to poop on the field instead of paying um, a, a corporation to buy in, you know, heaps of superphosphate. Similarly, no no one is making money other than, um, you know, the local fishmonger when you get your zinc from uh, a dozen fresh oysters instead of um, buying your branded expensive. Um, zinc zinc multi, multivitamin. So I think that the answer to why everyone's getting a, a recommended a complicated um, and in many cases unnecessary solution to their um, health, health or agricultural problem is because um, the most effective way um, is not making money for any third party. Mm-hmm. So this this kind of leads me down uh, a, a similar topic, and it's this is something that I've seen firsthand, having worked in agriculture, and it's something that I've seen probably spread across to more functional medicine and and probably more your naturopath types and that sort of thing as well. But you know, if you look at uh, the the Australian Certified Organic label, it means what it really means is that what's been applied to your food uh, is is more natural so you you don't have any artificial chemicals per se added to that so they're using uh you know certified organic fertilizer they're not putting things like uh agrochemicals on the food but what what it doesn't mean is that uh that food was grown in a way that uh is 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 close to the way it would grow in the wild and so you know you see you see people going to naturopaths in a similar way where they present with a disease. Say, for example, I go to a naturopath and I say I have recurring sore throats and that and that uh, naturopath says to me, okay, well, um, let's put you on a natural vitamin C. Like, let's get you on, on a, you know, 
uh, orange juice concentrate or, or something like that where it's got high levels of vitamin C and, and that's the band-aid solution. And so what you're really seeing is a like for like. So instead of instead of building health like you're building that compost uh, and instead of building health like you would in, in a human being by looking at the foundation principles, um, you're really applying a band-aid solution. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it definitely makes sense. Um, I mean, to uh, let's continue this agricultural analogy. It, it's, you know, if you're running a paddock, like in a set stocked way uh, with all your cattle just living in a big paddock for months on end and you start having thistle grow, grow, grow in it, it's the equivalent of, you know, going around with some Roundup and spraying, you know, each individual thistle uh, or, or, or removing them. But the the deeper question is, you know, why was the thistle growing there in the first place? Um, and the answer yes. is because the the agricultural um, technique isn't um, allowing that gra- ground to um, ha- thrive with a, um, a cover crop or, or different um, species of grasses that would prevent the thistle from arising in the first place. Um, so the, to to analogize with the the human is like, okay, yeah, we can just give you some vitamin C, but what are you doing in your life um, that is, you know, impairing your immunity or, or um, other than, you know, just simply uh, a, a hit of vitamin C, what, what, what else can we do? What lifestyle changes can we make to reduce your susceptibility to even getting that cold in the first place? Yeah. And, and so to, I guess, to make it clear for people, what I saw when I worked in, in agriculture was, we started. We converted some fields to organic. So we converted some some conventional cane to organic sugar cane, and basically what the agronomist did was he treated it exactly the same as a conventional field, but he put organic uh, certified organic uh, applications on there. So instead of fertilizing with NPK fertilizer, we used uh, you know mill mud, or we used uh, you know some something you know, that was supposedly natural or organic. And so when people would drive past that and, and when workers would see the field, they would say, well, organic is, you know, it's a farce. It doesn't work. And it was evidenced by the fact that that was completely full of weeds. The cane was smaller than all of the other conventional cane. And, it you know, it, it, it appeared to be a failure. And, you know, what you see is a, is a label put on that, um, you know, a certified organic label that says this is healthier than than other produce. Uh, but you really have to dig deeper and do your own investigation and, and and kind of come to the realization that when something has a just because it has a label doesn't mean that it, it is what it says. Yeah, totally. And you know, you'll talk to regenerative farmers like, you know, Jake Walkin, he pastures he puts his um, broilers, his meat birds on pasture. Uh, and you know moves them you know every couple times a day and and they have access to fresh grass and all this kind of thing and you know you can buy uh, organic chicken but that's in, in in from another uh farmer but that simply just means that the that the chicken was fed organic uh grain and it doesn't have any stipulation for the chicken to be outside or you know allow allowing it to live its you know express its natural um instincts and and to peck outside so i mean the the crux of the issue is that um 
anytime you you're outsourcing uh, your decisions from with regard to food choice to uh, a, a label or um, to a, a kind of some kind of industry body, unless you know for sure what that entails, then you know you're just as maybe just a little bit less, but you're you're still liable to be getting something that you that isn't necessarily um, what you think it is. And the best approach to circumnavigate or solve that problem is to find someone and meet the exact person that you're buying your produce off um, and you can verify for yourself their their practices uh, you can verify the animal welfare you can visit the farm you can ask your farmer what type of grain are these uh, pigs and chickens eating i mean you can have input into the whole process and you know i've interviewed a couple of farmers in my so uh, so far on my my podcast regenerative health podcast and all of them have said that they're highly responsive to the demands and the requests of their customers. And when the customers say, we want sausages, but we don't want any preservatives in them, you know, the, ne- the next batch, they've cut out all, all the rice flour and whatever else they were adding in um, because that's how it was done just by their butcher. So um, all, all that to say is that the opacity of the health of the food system um, or and, and the disconnect from, from the food system it can be solved, but it just involves a, a bit of effort um, on on your behalf to meet the person who is raising that um, food and, yeah, ver- verify for yourself what, what is going into um, or what, what is not and what is going into that process. <clears throat> yeah, and, and for some people that might be, you know, uh, like you said, actually traveling to a farm or, or you, you know, it's, it's easy today. You could look up, uh, you know, who Alan Savory is or who Joel Salatin is and, and look at the way they farm in comparison to uh, what some mega corporation who's got an organic certification does. Like they're totally different. They're, 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 they're completely different things. Yeah, yeah. And and look, any time, you know, there's these, these labels or these accreditations, they're susceptible to influence of, um, you know, stakeholders mm-hmm. and when profit becomes the main kind of uh, the main driver then you know what what seems to be a, a pure and, and reliable accreditation can get watered down and they accept uh, you know a, a small percentage of certified organic to but still maintain the label um, so that there's just yeah it, it becomes very easy for there to be um, I guess perversions of what 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 you think you're getting and um, yeah, it's very, very, the, the, again, the antidote is to simply um, do your due diligence and, and do the research for yourself. Because if you don't, you just simply aren't able to know exactly what you're putting on your family's plate. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about if some if someone was to go down this rabbit hole for themselves and, and you know, I, I guess I guess one of the problems that, we all come across inevitably when we begin is that there's so many different voices and there's, there's voices on the vegan side that say vegan diets, uh, have cured my cancer, which may be true. Um, and you know, um, there's voices on the carnivore diet that will say the same thing, uh, which also may be very true. How would someone, how, how does someone begin to, to cut through the chaff or to, to forge a path for themselves and actually determine, uh, what voices are actually truthful? 
or, or, or what? Works yeah, look, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and there are, as you said, there's just more and more people out there having a public opinion about about diet and about lifestyle and about nutrition, and I guess the the this the noise that is is as a result of that is just again getting louder and louder and louder. I think um I think at the at the crux of it, um, which feeds into our follows on for our last point is is verifying for yourself and as that applies to lifestyle advice is to actually listen and tune into your own body and what you feel subjectively um, from a from a health point of view and putting on or having the approach of being an experimenter on yourself and finding out what different approaches make you feel good and which which approaches make you not feel good and you know, I, I had a tweet about this recently on on Twitter because Andrew Huberman made a post of you know it's interest. He made the comment that it's interesting to see what what level of evidence people rely on before um, making a health decision or or about a health protocol. And you know, the, this, at the top of that pyramid, the people that only rely on randomized controlled trial data to um, inform a lifestyle choice, and then at the bottom of the pyramid is people that only rely on personal experience. To, to inform a, a health protocol or a decision about their lifestyle. And the question that I had um, rhetorically was that um, if you're only relying on randomized control trial data to inform your health uh, lifestyle choice, then you're making uh, uh, the implicit assumption that you're represented in that trial's intervention group uh, in a way that contains all the relevant um, factors, and what what I think is that o- often the case that that isn't the case, and because uh, and the, the, basically the, the nature of the randomized control trial is that it's only going to give you an aggregate kind of uh, answer. It, it it averages out the the treatment response um, in the intervention group and gives a kind of aggregated uh, effect. Uh, estimate, but it it doesn't account for the fact that there could be thirty percent of people in the intervention group that that responded amazingly, you know, and forty percent that responded horribly, and and you know everyone else just had no no effect at all. So, so there's a real loss of there's a loss of granularity, uh, a really loss of resolution if you're only relying on um, aggregated. Uh, RCT data to inform a health choice. So eventually, um, you, you come to the realization that um, we do have to treat everyone as an as an individual, um, and that is well, for a long period of time that was this promise of you know n equals one medicine, personalized medicine. So um, it doesn't. I don't think it's incongruent with uh, with. Med- medical best practice to really go back to that and say, yes, you are an N of one. You are you completely unique. You're not going to respond the same way as uh, the person next to you or the person next to them. So you have to rely on on subjective experience and how you feel when you try a different diet, a different routine, a different rate uh, workout regime, um, in 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 a way to inform what you should do. So. That I guess that's a, a roundabout way of of agreeing with you, Nick. That you that you need to listen to yourself and maybe uh, start with uh, a couple of people who are, have an evidence based backing, uh, like 
I guess like mm. uh, people like Huberman or people who like Dr. Cruz, like people like um, Dr. O'Mara, um, people who can marry evidence with uh, uh, with empirical um, and experience and then continue to ask yourself um, when you implement their recommendations, does this make me feel better? Does this make me feel worse? How do I feel? And that, that's like an iterative process that will eventually uh, allow you to come to a lifestyle protocol that makes you feel the best. And uh, I, yeah, I think that's probably the most effective uh, approach. But having said that, Nick, it takes effort and it takes attention. It takes cognitive bandwidth, often which is in short supply in, in, in today's day and age. So um, if you can't outsource that or you can't um, make all those decisions yourself, then there is a degree of outsourcing that. And I guess it's it's about being very careful about who you uh, kind of outsource that um, that reliance on. Uh, yeah. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's really, it's really consistent effort. It, I, personally, I haven't found that it, it kind of ever stops. Like, you know, my, my needs for, uh, nutrition and for sleep and for everything in between can change from day to day. If I do deadlifts one day, then, uh, perhaps the next day I'll need to eat some carbohydrates or I'll need to eat, um, you know, a you know, some rice or some potatoes or something like that uh, because I feel lethargic if I don't. Um, and on the opposite end of that, if I don't do any heavy movement for a few days, then I'm probably okay uh, to just stick to something uh, very minimal, maybe small amounts of meat or, 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 or small amounts of, you know, some protein-based food or, or maybe, you know, maybe eat vegetarian for a day as, as, as crazy as that might sound. Like it, it can change from day to day. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm in favor of, you know, a seasonal approach to eating. And for people who don't have metabolic disease or um, any kind of, of like obesity or fatty liver or di diabetes, I mean, you it's appropriate to eat what grows at that latitude that you, you live in. So cyclical ketosis um, is, is a good approach in my mind um, and not necessarily being um, completely dog dogmatic but it again it also depends on the individual it depends on what what your needs are, are you using something like a carnival diet for a ther therapeutic protocol or are you or are you simply just trying to optimize your lifestyle mm -hmm. so yeah all, all, all that to say is that there's not one size fits all and uh, everyone has to be to, has to take these uh, considerations in, into account um, for the in order to find the right thing for them we did talk a little bit yesterday about uh, a, a, tr a sort of a triangle that you described where you had uh, on one end of the spectrum, you had someone in the hospital bed, uh, maybe at the point of the triangle, you had uh, just the average person who probably doesn't have a whole lot of energy. They kind of feel lethargic, but they're not, uh, they're not on death's door. And then uh, you probably got the smallest amount of people on the last point of the triangle, which are at optimal health. And it's very difficult for the people who aren't at death's door, who are on that second point of the triangle, to actually know what health looks like. Um, they might feel lethargic, but their blood tests come back normal. Um, and they don't present with uh, any chronic or acute symptoms that make them uh, fit into that, uh, that disease category. And so 
uh, I guess a, a, a long story short, you've got this huge amount of people who are struggling with things like low energy and uh, suboptimal health. Uh, but because the majority of people fall into that, that category, uh, no one actually knows uh, that things could be better than they are. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a conceptual framework that I, I guess, use to inform or describe how, how I think about health. And uh, it's, ac- it's actually a stairs. There's like three stairs. Um, and at the bottom of the, the step is someone dying. Um, and then the middle step is someone who's just that makes uh, surviving, sense. getting by. And, yeah, and the top step is is thriving and you know living in, a, in an optimally health-optimized way. And the, the point about it is that um, when you're dying and, and you're going between that surviving and dying, that is when you need uh, antibiotics. That's where you need um, uh, you know, emergency surgery. That's when you need all the aspects of modern medicine that have, are so helpful mm. and, and beneficial. And they're really, um, in, you know, no one can dispute how, how beneficial they are. But what they can't do is they can't get the person who is, you know, merely just surviving. And that, as, as we talked about yesterday, that is the majority of the population who are proceeding through life with brain fog, with lo- fatigue, with low libido, um, and they're on a with increasing amounts of visceral fat, uh, ever ever you know kind of enlarging, and um, that's that those people are on a slow march towards chronic disease. But as you said, they might not yet have manifested you know biochemical um, problems by by blood tests. So so that's the majority of people. But they they unfortunately the the medicines can't get them from a state of surviving up to thriving, and to get to thriving mm. you need. Uh, optimal diet, optimal life lifestyle, sunlight, and exercise. So, uh, what 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 I learned in medical school, and what most of the 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 healthcare system, or you know, sick care system, if you want to, if you're thinking about, you want to be skeptical about it, is pre- predominantly uh, mm. associated or kind of preoccupied with that bottom to middle step uh, transition, and. You know, the ironic thing is that uh, there's no, there isn't uh, an appreciation of how to get to that thriving step. And that's when you see the overweight doctors, you know, that you see them that they're, you know, in their, on their own, having their own health problems that, you know, doctors taking antidepressant medications. So um, to, to suggest that um, the, the, I guess, healthcare industry is able to potentiate uh, optimal health it's it's just it is it isn't correct um and it's a it's a missed opportunity i think for for medicine and for doctors because it's just meant that other people um and you mentioned naturopathy and there's a range of other industries have simply filled that vacuum and maybe they, they haven't necessarily offered the most evidence-based um uh solutions or advice in that in that regard but w- what it means for most people is that when you're sitting on that middle step and you're there because you're eating a species inappropriate diet, you're deficient of of you're you're not meeting your needs with regard to sunlight and exer- and uh, exercise, is that um, as you said you you often didn't realize how you got there and it's just like the glasses that gather progressive amount of grime uh, that build up over time. People are unaware of forgotten what it feels like to. Um, to thrive and you know I, I remember when I was a kid 
you know, you go to sleep and you wake up like a light switch and you'd be, you just jump out of bed and you'd be ready to, you know, ride your bike or do something fun outside. And before I went through my own journey, which I described to you at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I was just feeling so fatigued and so tired and, you know, getting up was an absolute chore. And I remember, you know, uh, I remember, you know, walking thinking like, man, is this what it's supposed to be like? Is this what health is? Is this what life is? And that just drag and that drained feeling. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, I guess, reinforce with you, Nick, to, to your listeners is that you can feel like that five-year-old again. Um, you can feel like that. And it's about getting the diet and lifestyle of, uh, fixed and in an appropriate way. And then it's like cleaning those glasses and suddenly you're, you're back at an optimal thriving um, again and you can experience everything and you're waking up is easy. You have energy for the, throughout the day. You don't need to nap. You've got a healthy libido. You look forward. You have, you have a joyful outlook on life. So all, all that, I guess, is to say people are occupying this middle zone. They've forgotten about what it feels like to be optimally healthy, but don't, don't, don't despair because you can get up to that, that third level. And, you know, that's what I'm interested in professionally. And, you know, that's what you're interested in. And the more we talk about it, the more we promote diet and optimal lifestyle strategies, the more we can help people clean their glasses and get, get to optimal thriving again. Mm. And, and it, and it brings me back once again to that compost analogy, right? So I often have, you know, I, I, I use what's called six foundation principles and, and they're breathing, thinking, movement, nutrition, hydration, sleep. And so, you know, you have to have all of those things to create optimal health. If you're missing a piece of that, then you're going to fall back into that suboptimal category. And one of the things that I find most challenging for most people is consistency with those things. And so, you know, first of all, you need a motivation to get there, but then you also need to become aware and committed to the fact that compost doesn't form overnight. And so you can put your, you know, your, your, your waste, your banana skins and your, your eggshells and your coffee grounds in a compost bin um, and, you know, close your eyes and go to bed and wake up the next day, but they're not going to be compost yet. And so the analogy spreads over to our, to our own health. And so it takes time, it takes heat, it takes, uh, it, it takes energy, it takes uh, bacteria to, to begin to break down uh, those materials to make the healthy compost. And so you're not going to get into a position of optimal health overnight. And so I, I think that's one of the things that people find most frustrating because when you, when you enter the, the, the medical industry, uh, you, you were promised a quick fix solution most of the time and, and you might experience reprieve from your symptoms for uh, a certain amount of time because you, you get that quick fix solution, but it's so difficult in a low dopamine world uh, for people to make a commitment to change. And you, I, I think one of the most important things, uh, in fact, I know one of the most important things in, in my own work with my own clients is establishing what I call a dream for them. And so what we do is, is we sit down together and we work out what, what are you, what's your ultimate life goal? Like beyond, beyond saying, I want to lose weight or beyond saying, uh, I want to be out of pain. Like what's the motivation? What's, what's the end goal? Um, and maybe that's for some people to be able to play with their children when they're, you know, midlife or, or to be able to play with their grandchildren. And for other people, they have, uh, you know, a goal that's as high as Mount Everest. Um, but without, 
without that goal, um, they they struggle to maintain uh, the compost heap, maintain the, the inner garden, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I love it, Nick. Um, we you know we call that blue sky thinking um, in terms of helping people motivate a, a dietary lifestyle change to reverse their diabetes or lose weight. And yeah, you have uh, from a psychological point of view, it's so helpful to anchor. Uh, the the change in a future goal of what you can what you'd like to be able to do if your health improved and as you said playing with grandchildren going on a you know going to Antarctica you know what, whatever it is or simply just um, being pain free to drive a caravan around Australia uh, there the, there's enormous value in psychologically um, anchoring to that in terms of the discipline of carrying out things on a day-to-day basis because as you said to get to make that compost or to have any kind of long-term success it's it's made up of you know micro decisions on a daily basis and all of them aggregate together to to either result in success and failure and and it sounds you know not to put too much pressure on people but you know every single decision does matter um every single decision to reach for the processed food instead of um, you know the high, high quality food. Every decision to, you know, lie on the sofa and watch uh, another episode of, of Netflix. You know, in in at eleven p.m. exposed to blue light instead of going to sleep. You know that they all add up and they they kind of they make the bed that eventually people lie in, uh, for better or for worse. So that blue sky thinking or that anchoring to a uh, a future imagined. State is incredibly powerful in terms of helping people maybe make a better choice when it comes to the time that they're stressed or um, or anxious and so tempted to just eat a block of chocolate. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that, Nick. I, I think it's it's powerful. And, and and look, it it actually comes to my approach when I think about helping people, particularly with weight loss, is that there's two there's two facets here. There's the physiology and the, and the psychology. And, you know, within the physiology, we could talk about ketosis. We can talk about um, the circadian rhythm. We can talk about visceral fat. You know, we can talk about that until your, your ears fall off. But someone can understand those concepts uh, at an intellectual level. But that, that means nothing if their psychology part of it hasn't also been addressed. And for that um, reason, or for tied up in that idea of psychology, is reasons why why are people overeating? Why are they uh, addicted to sugar? Why are they um, uh, in the situation where they are from a lifestyle point of view? And so many things. I mean, there could be comfort eating. There could be you know unresolved childhood traumas emotionally. There could be in a situation where it's normal to. Uh, to just drink beer every after work every day uh or it's normal that when you catch up with this group of friends we um you know we eat chocolate and watch movies and 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 not nothing to say bad about that because there's value in getting together and um and and being Mm -hmm. social but understanding whether uh there's an there's a a habit in your life that is leading you further away from your optimal health it just helps people be a bit more conscious about decisions to maybe hang out with that group of friends or to you know go work at a particular job um, when we understand that those habits and those lifestyle choices or 
um, the psychology is directly impacting our physiology and our ability to achieve our health goal or our uh, ideal um, state of, of health. Mm. It's 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 kind of funny to think. Uh, I I often come a, come across this conversation, and and we talk about discipline and the discipline of being able to maintain uh, a healthy diet or a healthy healthy lifestyle. And uh, for me, and and for I guess some of the clients who I've worked with more long term, and for for you, I'd imagine as well, it doesn't become discipline anymore. It doesn't become a, a difficult thing to do because what you inevitably find is that. After a certain period of time, uh, the gut microbiome changes, and you stop craving uh, the things that uh, you know you you originally craved. And the other side of it is, you feel so good and so energetic all the time that, for one, you don't want to lose that, and two, you don't need the things that you previously needed to feel that good. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't couldn't have said it better myself, Nick. That is such a good point. Yeah, and and then so I think beyond People, that, it's hmm. it's it's only a matter of, uh, like you say, when when the psychology, when there's when there's a psychological factor that comes into play that could potentially uh, derail the train, um, you know, and and <clears throat> that is also inevitably going to happen for everyone. I, I think uh, I think there's. <laughs> you, you're going to fall off the wagon, but the other side of it is. Uh, if 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 you go to a party and and you want to have a beer or two or or you know you you overindulge, uh, it's not going to be the end of the world either. And and I think I think there's also utility in in overindulging at certain points of time, right? You don't want to be. I think there's nothing worse than a zealot either. Yeah. Um. So I think yeah, a couple points. I agree with you that. When you get to a stage of, um, you know, thriving, you're so in tune with your body that you you're acutely aware of what, how you'll feel when you, you know, say eat something or you, uh, you know, have a blowout on the beers or or any kind of, uh, any kind of, you know, deviation from optimal lifestyle. That is, but that's powerful in itself because what it, what it both does it it allows you to continue on your current lifestyle and as you said it becomes easier to just simply exist because it's again it's not a, a, a laborious decision it's simply how you live but it also allows you to occasionally make a decision to actively say you know um screw it i'm gonna have a blowout tonight because x y or z reason and you know sometimes you don't even need a reason uh but at least being aware of what how these things affect you rather than mindlessly or, or not even being consciously aware of, of how that um, kind of individual food choice or um, lifestyle choice is impacting you. That's the kind of the problem because when people aren't consciously making a decision, that's when you get on that slow march towards, you know, visceral fat and chronic disease. But look, I agree. And, and I think that being part of having a healthy approach to lifestyle and feeling good is yeah, occasionally having a, a time where you let your hair down, so to speak. But um, the power is in actively and consciously making that decision based on um, an, an empowered position and self-knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't, it's, it's no longer the, the binge every weekend type of blowout. It's, 
it's a, it's an active choice, right? It's 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 not it's not a blowout because uh, because we're not feeling good in our work or in in the rest of our life or we're feeling lethargic and low energy. It's 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 like you say, a conscious active choice. One of the yeah. things that I found um, uh, that one sorry. One of the things that I, I was going to say that I found interesting in your conversation with Cruz, and and I've heard uh, I've heard other people talk about this well, is the changing of textbooks as as time goes on, and and I guess uh, there's a certain uh, a certain group of people who would describe uh, what's happening as de-evolution in a way. So uh, I th- I think what I I don't know if it was your podcast with Cruz or or another podcast that I heard him on, but he was talking about calcification of the pineal gland and he was saying look back in old textbooks you know uh probably early mid 1900s uh there was you know this this calcification of the pineal gland was abnormal um and he said it you know you can even go back and and purchase these textbooks and he named the books where this this wasn't normal and as time progresses and as people become less healthy um it's the textbook starts to change and they describe uh, disease as normal things. Another, I, I think another an, another example of that is um, as we look at anatomy textbooks um, and people's posture starts starts to change. We start to see the head migrating forward in in anatomy textbooks, and we start to see lumbar curves increasing or decreasing as uh, as the population starts to decline. And so, all that is to say that again, it's it's very difficult for people to actually know what normal is. Uh, and for even the experts to know what normal is when uh, our point of reference is a textbook and the textbooks, I, I guess when normal becomes becomes uh, disease. Yeah, and you know there, there, there there's multiple examples of this in in medicine, and you mentioned that idea of maybe pineal calcification is now becoming normalised. Uh, I'm I. I th- I haven't listened to this specific episode that you're talking about, but I've previously heard Cruz talk about the fact that people aren't making endogenous melatonin, you know, because of their exposure to blue light and non-native EMF as a contributing factor to to pineal calcification. But uh, it's essentially what you're describing is um, when you've got most of the population since, on since that middle step. Since we said the word pineal calcification, on, on that, we, on uh, that simple, uh, we, we've, we've fallen into a quack category. If we went there already, yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. When, when what I was saying is that when you have most of the people in that middle step of simply surviving, um, and you know, there's multiple papers. I think you know, there's papers showing that eighty eight percent of citizens in the U.S. have got one marker of metabolic syndrome, at least one marker of metabolic syndrome. Um, when you when you then derive a, a textbook or a, a reference range for a blood test from an unhealthy population, you, you start to normalize um, disease. And I mean, the the examples that I can think of uh, off the top of my head was, um, you know, is something like fasting insulin. You know, it, the the reference range when when they get reported. Uh, in in the labs can be you know anywhere up to twenty, and if someone's got a fasting insulin of twenty, then uh, they're obviously working much very hard to keep their blood sugar under control, 
uh, and you know in healthy population it's it should be closer to three or four um and then there's other examples i mean the number of follicles on ovaries that were used to be uh considered normal i believe uh was you know anything above was he, i think i believe it was six uh six or eight uh was abnormal but now it's you know it's much i think it's 12 uh, you know, sperm counts, everyone knows that's a common one. Um, you know, that's a, a very big one in social media to comment on the declining trends of, of male sperm counts and what is considered to be normal by uh, in terms of sperm count compared to uh, 60 years ago. So so the, the theme of what, what we're talking about is a, a progression or a moving of goalposts uh, in terms of mm. what is common but it's what is not not necessarily healthy, and I think that it's an exciting thought that if we um, that we really should put together or really build up more of a reference based on people who are optimally healthy, um, and to kind of keep that uh, and as a reference point to really compare people against. Rather than um, rather than continually accept uh, these changed markers or these changed uh, goalposts when when thinking about uh, optimal health, so the there's that that that's something to keep in mind. And and again, it's like what is normal is not necessarily optimally healthy. Mm. It, I, I don't know if I said this to you uh, yesterday or if I said it to someone else, but uh, speaking of, of uh, follicles on ovaries and, and uh, male sperm count and, and fertility overall, as it relates to our conversation on health in general, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to me that you know, the field of uh, IVF uh, is, is continuing to grow. And uh, and people are, are very desperate to have children and and all the power to them. But uh, you know the comment is often made that it's difficult to afford uh, organic food or to take the time to exercise or to uh, you know to to live an optimal lifestyle. And yet these same people who claim that it's too expensive will go out and spend twenty or thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars even on in vitro fertilization. And to me that that is almost nonsensical when. We know that the factors that contribute to low fertility are lifestyle factors, almost always. I, and I mean, there there are examples of 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 uh, where 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 that is not the case. Uh, but I think probably for the grand majority of people, would that that would not be true. Yeah, no. Um, there is, there are obviously there's situations of of infertility that are unrelated to uh, lifestyle. You know, things like structural abnormalities, um, uh, a range of other kind of of uh, maybe genetic issues. But for the, as you said, for the vast majority of people, there's there's modifiable uh, lifestyle factors that are impacting their, their fertility and you know i guess that, that, that's almost a whole uh, episode or, or discussion on on its own but um the prevalence of things like endocrine disrupting chemicals in the in the food supply the fact that uh 
polyunsaturated, you know, highly oxidized seed oils are the are the norm in terms of the most consumed uh, fat or, or, or uh, fatty acids in in society. Um, you know, the the prevalence of of visceral fat and and uh, you know metabolic dysfunction, all, all these are um, all these are modifiable, and they're all contributing to uh, subfertility in in people. And what I say when when people say to me, you know, regenerative meat, or oh, this is very expensive, that's very expensive, um, you know, costs twenty seven dollars a kilo for high quality regenerative meat. Well, what what I say is, you know, you can pay that farmer now, or you can pay uh, your doctor, your your orthopedic surgeon, your IVF specialist, mm-hmm. um, your geriatrician. You can pay them later. It's it's up to you. So you, you you're not kind of getting away with it. You're not. There's no um, avoiding the cost. Uh, you're simply um, you're simply paying now and investing in your health. Or you're going to be paying that and more when you manifest disease, you manifest um, infertility, you manifest um, ischemic heart disease down the track. So it's a it's a point that is very important um, that I don't think uh, people realize, and I think maybe that's simply another reflection of uh, short term thinking and short term mentality that pervades all, all parts of um, society and not not necessarily just with regard to dietary choice but um, yeah mm. I, I think it's it's a it's a mindset shift that happens and needs to happen when people invest in their health through things like time to work out time to be in nature and time to eat uh, high quality food rather than seeing it as a burden or a cost because um, it's it's never a decision that's made in isolation if you're choosing to not eat the regenerative and the uh, beef and the pastured eggs, you're choosing to eat the lower quality food. Um, and if that cost is not obvious now, as I said, it will be obvious in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's, there's a few different perspectives on that. Like I've seen research that suggests that the higher quality food that you eat, then the less uh, caloric intake that you need or the less quantity of that food that you need to eat. So potentially... You know, the the more high quality food that you eat, you you're 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 kind of balancing the extra cost uh, against the fact that you have to eat less of it. Um, and I think the the other side to that, um, and it's kind of slipping my mind right now, is no, it's 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 totally gone. Uh, it'll it'll come back to me sometime. But um, yeah, it's a it's it's a fascinating topic. It, here it is. It's back again. So. I think uh, if if people actually saw what the cost of of uh, of their medical expenses was, if if they had to pay for their medical expenses themselves, uh, it would soon they would soon become acutely aware of uh, the difference between buying high quality food, spending time in nature, and exercising uh, when, as it comes up against paying uh, hundreds of dollars per hour. Uh, you know, to, to see a clinician and then paying for the, the, the drugs and the surgery on top of that, which are, you know, enter the tens of thousands of dollars very quickly. Yes, I agree with that. I think that when there's a disconnect from the cost of healthcare, then it's psychologically uh, either consciously or subconsciously possible to uh, kind of absolve oneself of immediate responsibility um, because, you know, the, the, they'll be able to get prescriptions, they'll be able to get a knee replacement, 
Um, they'll be able to have all, all these procedures done as part of, uh, you know, a social, uh, publicly funded healthcare system. But when that cost is solely borne by and by someone as an, an individual, I I do ag- agree. I think the psychology shifts and people will be much more inclined or um, willing to engage or uh, participate in preventative health decisions because they're, they're, they're simply bearing it that cost themselves personally. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something and it's, it's a little bit of a, a fraught topic because, you know, socialized and uh, public healthcare system is the crux of, has been uh, in Australia. It's been something that everyone uh, is, has felt has become used to. And I, I would even, um, hazard the use of the word entitled to from, for, for a, quite a long time, but, um, is that necessarily system in in their best interests? And sure, when, when it comes to um, emergency care and you know uh, a whole range of care, it is. But when it comes comes to things like preventative care and you know people are very easily accepting of the high blood pressure medication, perhaps, or they're not as questioning of of layering these prescriptions as they would if they had to bear the entire cost themselves. The, the other point I want to make is about uh, choosing lower quality um, food over higher quality food. And this is a point that my friend that Jake Wolke mentions is that when you decide to buy that Coles chicken, uh, the barbecue roast chicken, uh, the reason why you're paying $8.99 for it is because the animal itself is picking up the tab. And what he means by that is that it is subsidizing by the fact that it lives in a big shed without access to pasture, um, without access to its natural ability to express its natural pecking behavior. Um, it is, it's paying the cost for that cheap chicken be, or the price you're paying because it's able to be stuffed into a shed with, you know, thousands of its cousins uh, at the same time. So, when someone is saying, you know, I can't afford regenerative meat, what what they're, um, you know, not consciously saying, but uh, expressing with their purchasing decision, is that you know I'm condoning the um, basically the the poor treatment of of animals, uh, particularly chicken and pork, uh, in mm. uh, in the form of factory raised um, and factory farmed techniques. And you know, I'm I'm ex I'm pushing the cost, or I'm subsidizing my own um, diet by um, pushing that onto the animal. So, I'm not not to sound like I'm you know uh, mor- moralistic or high horsing or, or judgment judge, judging people, but I think that is the reality of of why um, why that food is so cheap. And there's always hidden cost. There's there's the cost is not only represented. Um, in that that label on on that ch- barbecue chook, there's un, unseen costs that someone is paying for you to get that that yeah, chicken totally at that agree. price. <clears throat> we talked a little bit yesterday about uh, pathology testing, and and I mentioned to you that 
with all of my clients, I use a series of questionnaires and it, it can take them between like one and two hours to fill out these questionnaires. And basically what it does is uh, I'll do a, a, a physical assessment on them and, and a lot of the time that's a biochem- uh, biomechanical one, but I'll also break down <clears throat> their bodily systems. And so these questions categorize the symptoms that they're experiencing and uh, they they basically uh, surmise a score uh, and and put that score into the the bodily system that uh, the symptoms is, is associated with, and so um, I guess the reason why I do that is is one um, what I find with with writing programs for people or, or creating exercise prescriptions is that if someone is is unhealthy if their organs are uh, if their organs are already taxed then. Uh, giving them intense exercises is, is not an intelligent idea. Um, and the other reason that I do that is, uh, is is because we're doing the lifestyle coaching side of things. And so we're doing these things in conjunction. And, and one of the things that I often find with people is that um, they will have recently come from a doctor and you know the, the blood tests come back perfectly fine. Uh, liver function is A-OK. But yet when they answer the questionnaires, uh, they have all these these symptoms that are associated with uh, with a backed up liver, and maybe that soreness uh, under their right rib cage, or maybe it's uh, maybe it's pimples, maybe it's uh, you know uh, the the stool is 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 smelling foul, or or uh, it's not well formed, or whatever symptom you can think of that is associated with uh, poor liver health. But to all that is to say that, and, and you answered my question yesterday, but just just for the audience. Um, some sometimes the symptoms don't align with with the pathology reports. Yeah, and the reason for that could be you know multifaceted, but essentially the these individual biomarkers are, are reductionist and incomplete and um, not very granular representations of um, optimal function. So, you know, when we measure your um, your ALT or your AST or your GGT, which are all, they're basically enzymes. You know, they're enzymes uh, that exist, you know, in or or in, on the cell membrane or inside the, the liver hepatocyte, the liver cell. Um, you know, they get expressed uh, or detected in the, the serum when there's cellular damage. And um, it it can be the case that you you, you might a patient might have to be far far along or far down the track in terms of dysfunction before those biomarkers are flagging uh, kind of positive, and in some cases with reference we talked about reference ranges some labs have a, mm-hmm. a pretty high reference range for an ALT so you know cases of suggestive of fatty liver with with mildly elevated um, ALT will go miss and and perhaps that clinician isn't aware of what is a, you know a healthy ALT in a non obese non metabolically um, dysfunctional population but uh, often the is the case is that simply the test itself is uh, an imprecise proxy of of optimal health and it, it is again it's a reductionist view and it's useful it's useful for us when we're detecting and treating frank hepatitis when we're um you know monitoring mm-hmm. drug 
responses and and monitoring uh you know adverse effects of of certain necessary medications but as a as a tool of assessing optimal health it it's incomplete and it's and it's not necessarily something to be uh, relied on uh, and again it's just it's a it's something that is is giving us um information about that those bottom two steps between the dying and the surviving and if someone is is trying to get to that next level it, it's not necessarily something to rely on um and i think it's a good opportunity to 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 think about uh, or to talk about what are the most optimal biomarkers for health and if your your uh, listeners are interested, I'd I'd recommend checking out my podcast with Dr. Sean O'Mara, because he is a is a lifestyle optimizing physician in the U.S. And what he does with his patients, and and what I'll be looking to do as well, is basically whole body uh, MRI with particular emphasis on uh, the abdom- the abdomen and uh the the pericardium and the liver and i guess the the upper quadriceps and what we're, we're looking for is ectopic fat deposition and in those in that situation the the indication of visceral fat in the abdomen or you know uh, ectopic fat in the around the pericardium uh in is a great indicator for proxy for optimal health and if people are carrying visceral fat um, you know, it's metabolically active tissue, it's um, pro-inflammatory, then uh, all manner of obscure and nagging symptoms will disappear when that visceral fat is lost. So um, all, all that to say that certain biomarkers are better than others for uh, indicating disease, disease or helping us get to optimal health. And I, I, I'm, I'm more and more inclined to believe that instead of pathology uh, as in blood testing things like visualizing uh, visceral fat directly with a modality like mri is probably um, not only the best way to identify or show people where they can improve but also to help track progress and i guess stimulate um, behavior change and and, and lifestyle change mm-hmm and so <clears throat> I guess what you're talking about is a multifaceted approach where you're using perhaps, well, the the method that you you just referenced, but also, you know, asking people what their symptoms are and then combining that with uh, pathology testing. So you're getting more of uh, a, a holistic view to, to overuse that word once again. Yes, but also not trying to rely um, too, too much on the, on the pathology in the way that you know, as you said, people can might feel crap, but they they're like the pathology is is pristine, and mm. uh, what what that I have to often say to, to patients is, uh, again, it's th- this is just telling me that you're not having an acute severe problem right now, but it doesn't necessarily mean mm. that you're uh, feeling amazingly. So, and um, what if we if we're thinking about um, again, it's like what what's a better biomarker? And, you know, as long as people are maintaining a degree of visceral fat, uh, which is what, what I use at the moment is simply um, a waist to height ratio. And if it's if you measure your waist and, and your height, and if your waist is more than um, half your height for, for guys or more than 4, 0.48 or 48% for women, you know, uh, 
you know, I'm I'm not I guess I'm not surprised if there's a range of nagging symptoms that can be anywhere from you know irritable bowel, diarrhea predominant irritable bowel to you know just for general fatigue. Um, all, all, all of these are kind of can get tied up or can spring from the carrying of excess visceral fat and you know so a degree of insulin resistance that goes along with that. Um, so again, rather rather than fixating on specific blood markers. Uh, let's assess appearance and performance um, and let's look directly um, if possible at uh, you know the the presence of something like visceral fat and I think that that is probably um, a, a, a more robust way of of helping people health optimize mm-hmm and and by the sounds of it, uh, I probably should have asked you this earlier, but you're you're not a one and done doctor. You're not a a, a revolving door kind of doctor. I, I I can't imagine like you you're not getting the results that you're getting with your uh, with your patients by seeing them in in fifteen minutes and then you know see you later. Um, thanks for the advice. No, no, not at all. Um, you know, I I have thirty minute slots, so I see see patients. Um, and some some people, if it's just a regular GP issue, then uh, yeah, it doesn't take very long. But uh, for people who who want to go into or, or explore why they're feeling unwell or they want to start getting rid of visceral fat, then yeah, I, I take the time to, and it does take time. So no, I'm not I'm not just uh, you know printing out a piece of paper and hustling people out of my room in in seven minutes. That's for sure. <laughs> um. And and so I, I guess uh, I guess you fall slightly into the coaching category with that, right? So your uh, your 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 coaching skills are. Uh, is is that something you're working to develop over time? Like, is that a field of interest for you? And 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 what are you pursuing right now? Insofar as as your your fields of interest, like, is it is it purely uh, metabolic health and 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 light and things like that? Yeah, you're you're right, and it's it's uh, a good point because when we're going again, like we to reference those three steps, if we're helping people go from you know just surviving to to thriving, it is a coaching. It's a lot. A lot of it is coaching, and so yeah, it's something that I'm working on and and always I guess learning and and learning off learning off my patients as well. That's a very interesting thing that they don't tell us uh, in in medical school or or any kind of other formal training is that the amount that we learn from hearing our patients stories and hearing their experiences in response to advice that we've given them and what works and what doesn't work that is incredibly powerful so um de- definitely emphasizing the the coaching and the lifestyle coaching um aspect to things in terms of reversing metabolic disease but my my interests are, are quite broad and and it, it they, they lie in yeah weight loss um you know again reversing diabetes type 2 diabetes fatty liver disease polycystic ovary syndrome uh, helping patients come off um, high blood pressure medications and come off diabetic medications but but then also just general health optimization for for younger people and commonly that looks like um you know helping helping uh people again reverse acne uh and optimize their health prior to uh, falling pregnant and for for men and for for women mm. because 
you know, I believe that if you have optimal health, you're going to be optimally fertile. Um, and a- absence of or subfertility is simply uh, a reflection of a suboptimal environment and not sub- suboptimal lifestyle and suboptimal diet. So m- those are kind of my interests, which are, I guess, going from, yeah, the 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 e- the, the very various uh, facets or shades of 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 reversing disease, but also optimizing optimizing health. And I, and I guess I'm I'm lucky and I feel grateful that I am in a position where um, not only can I do you know health optimization in in coaching in the way that you can, Nick, but also help people who are much sicker and people who are on um, mm. medications um, guide them in a medical way to to get off some of the medications that they don't need to be taking if they had have made the changes to um to optimize their lifestyle so it's uh it's it's very broad and it yeah i, I i'm the opposite of a, of a specialist and i guess that's why i fell into general practice training because um i, I think that the, the the holistic approach needs a general general approach and to hone in on only one organ system is to miss the forest from the trees yeah, and I, I think uh, I think you know my my ability to comment on this is probably limited, but I think uh, I think the medical field has has you know it's 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 hip to be or it's cool to be a, a specialist, and you know we have a lot of admiration for specialists, but um, if you if you don't understand how these systems interrelate with each other, then you, you can't you can't. Uh, you can't help someone as, as much as, as as someone like you could. Yeah, and and uh, I had an interview with a really lovely GP, Dr. Penny Figtree, who works in uh, Port Macquarie, um, and she makes the point that you know she sees patients, and again, they've got a specialist for every disease system, uh, and she just watches them you know year after year get sicker and sicker and sicker and the specialists are just increasing their dosages their of their medications they're adding new medications to simply treat um their own siloed interpretation of what's going wrong with the, the patient and you know when penny when dr victory puts them these patients on a you know low carbohydrate diet and gives them effective lifestyle advice uh you know, their, their need for these medications evaporates and their need for specialist input evaporates. So um, what that mm. what that just shows is that it this this siloing approach, you know, clearly isn't working um, for in terms of helping people optimize or, or to live a, a healthy life. And it takes someone who can see everything and all the parts of it to to really make progress and to uh, yeah, achieve achieve a, an optimal outcome with regard to that patient um, holistically. Yeah, I think we could we could chat forever on this topic. And one of the things that I've seen uh, fairly commonly is is uh, premature referral to orthopedic surgeons. And uh, you know, it's uh, there's there's the old saying, you know, you you buy your orthopedic surgeon a new Mercedes or a new BMW. But I've I you know I've I've literally seen people who haven't been to haven't even had a referral to a physio get discectomies and and you know uh and and fusions and all these sorts of things and, and they're told it's it's the only option and you know it, it's it's even funny for me to see 
even without prescribing uh, corrective exercise for someone or, or, you know, working on their transverse abdominus, like getting the pelvic floor working and that sort of thing for back pain again, just changing someone's diet, just changing someone's diet and lifestyle can have a significant impact on their pain because when you reduce inflammation uh, and perhaps when you reduce abdominal distension through bloating and all of these things, then uh, you know you no longer have the pain or, or, or the pain becomes less uh, because of the reduced inflammation. And so uh, what you may find is that uh, perhaps you, 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 you no longer have to get surgery just through diet and lifestyle changes or perhaps you, you delay the, the, the need for it. it you know, it's, it's not something that you have to do immediately because you're no longer in acute or chronic pain. And so again, I, I'm just highlighting yeah, yeah. Um, the 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 uh, holistic nature, or the the uh, the uh, the you know the body. I like to describe it as a system of systems, and and so you know, a, or a cybernetic system. Fixing one system or, or working on one system affects the rest inevitably. Yeah, and uh, you know, Doctor Amara went through his process of identifying visceral fat and uh, as his target of his work because uh, he worked with a doctor who was MRIing people for uh, lower back pain in the US. And the reason or the, the key, uh, I guess, associational factor with the severity of the back pain uh, wasn't in fact pathology in the spine. It was, uh, or it wasn't um, in terms of disc degeneration it was the presence of visceral fat. And as you said, it's, mm-hmm. it's highly, as I also mentioned, it's highly inflammatory. And the state of, of having that kind of inflammatory tissue in, in your body and around that area was kind of provoking symptoms. So yes, it, it 100% makes sense that, you know, we can do so much before um, we, we need to operate uh, to, to improve people's symptoms. And, you know, the onus is, is on, um, or that's what, why why I why I do what I do is because I believe that the onus is on the doctor to actually give patients effective lifestyle advice, and you know we have a protocol you know in our training about um, you know smoking, uh, nutrition, alcohol, physical activity, uh, in terms of you know box ticking exercise to tell patients, but uh, I don't think in so many cases that 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 advice that's been given is actually meaningfully helpful um and again it's not the individual practitioner's fault and i'm I'm not blaming colleagues by any means but it's simply what what we were taught and and what is being kind of uh yeah pushed down from higher up uh the the point is though that when the patients are empowered with that correct lifestyle advice they do really make often make things like surgery either unnecessary or, or highly delayed. Um, and another good interview, I talked to an orthopedic surgeon in Sydney, Dr. Doron Scher, and he has that exact um, effect because he puts his joint replacement patients on a lower carb diet and you know often sees uh, them not needing to, to even need replacement or in many cases delaying for you know many couple of years. So... Um, yeah, there's lots to be done, and there 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 is so much that can be done before you know you go for the nuclear option like uh, surgery for sure. Mm. One one of the things, uh, and you may be already aware of this, uh, but I'll share it anyway. Is uh, what I, what I found, uh, and I, I found this uh, 
I've found it in practice. I, I didn't come up with myself is that oftentimes food intolerances um, or allergies can cause such abdominal distension that it actually shuts off the transverse abdominus and the pelvic floor. And so you see people uh, with abdominal distension and bloating who can't activate uh, that, that transverse abdominal and as a result uh, incur injury at work or you know develop uh, chronic back pain and the, the root cause of it is a food intolerance. Crazy. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. So is there anything else you'd like to discuss before we wrap it up? I think we've had a, a pretty in-depth conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's been great, Nick. Um, uh, I don't, I don't think there's anything other than, I guess I'd I'd re- re-emphasize the point that we made earlier, which is, uh, I'd encourage everyone to tune into their own, I guess, body and their own symptoms, and make a mental note of how they feel on and how when they eat certain food or when they're i guess going about their 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 life and what once that that ability or that sensation is tuned um you, you're able to start making changes and, and be more aware of how they uh, are making you feel and, and how they are benefiting you so uh yeah I, I would encourage everyone to cultivate that inner doctor in themselves um, especially when it comes to dietary and lifestyle. Um, obviously, if they're, if you're medicated, then you know come and see someone like me before you change your medication pro- protocol. That's very important. But if you're simply um, you know on that middle stage of you're just surviving, you're not thriving, then the first step is to realize what that you don't feel well, realize um, or have an idea that you can feel better, and then start making a mental note of, of what different factors in your life make you feel. And then as you make changes and even as small, small as you know, cutting out some processed food to start with, you know, reducing the amount of uh, refined grains you're eating, uh, even just making those minor changes and seeing how that makes you feel, that is kind of the first step to getting to that thriving state. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'd, I'd uh, emphasize that point. Yeah, and I I think uh, I th- I think I take that to mean like simplifying, right? Like just make things a little bit more simple, and and you know in, instead of having to to be perfect today, um, try cutting out refined foods or or a refined food, um, and and you know I I think the the simplicity of a carnivorous diet is 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 uh exemplified by the fact that uh, it's also an elimination diet, right? So um you you know you're you're cutting out a lot of the bad stuff straight away and people start to feel really good pretty fast exactly yeah yeah i'm big big fan of the carnival diet here um for for those reasons very good well thank you for your time i appreciate it and uh i hope to talk to you again soon thanks nick where can yeah, people find pleasure. you max yeah so if you go on to, if we, you can uh, find my podcast, The Regenerative Health Podcast, where I'm interviewing uh, doctors and lifestyle doctors and uh, health optimization practitioners and regenerative farmers. So that um, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major podcasting platforms. And I'm also on Twitter 
uh, at um, Max Colhane MD and uh, Instagram Doctor underscore Max uh, underscore Colhane. So uh, yeah, that th- those that's where you can find me, and um, yeah, you can send me a DM or send me an email. Uh, regenerative Health at uh, Proton dot me if you want to get in touch. Awesome, and I, I thoroughly recommend, or, or or really recommend, giving your podcast a listen. You uh, you have some great guests, and you got a great line of questioning, and I uh, I think that people could learn a lot from it. So, thanks for your time. Thanks, Nick.